0: Um, so, yeah. Uh, did anybody manage to read Esther? Yeah? Val? Yeah, Sarah? Well done. Okay, cool. Well, not not to worry if you didn't, because what I'm going to be doing in this overview is, is basically taking you through Esther. I'm going to... It's like story time. So I am going to be rereading a lot of the story, and I've broken it into four different scenes. Um, but I also remember the first time that I did a full-on overview of Esther. It was back in 2009. And the week of preparing for the overview, there were some horrific things that were happening in, in news. Um, I remember there was an attack from Boko Haram killing loads of innocent folk. There was a, a missionary that was targeted and went missing in North Korea. Uh, it was just lots of things like that. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, man, we're so... We're so harsh to one another. Human beings, like, really are cruel. Cool. What is the world coming to? And just about the time of seeing that, Toby, sorry, I know that you're working on the camera, but if I could cue you to um, put up this this picture up on the screen. Do you remember seeing these buses back in 2009? Yeah? There's Richard Dawkins there. Um, there's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. And I remember... Seeing that, perhaps for the first time when I was preparing for this overview and all this bad stuff going on and I was just utterly downcast by it. And I remember seeing those words and thinking, how horrible, how, actually, I I felt like they were immoral. How immoral are those words? Because they're very Western, aren't they? Like, it's, it's okay for... For, for people living in the UK with unions and NHS and benefits to have a go at enjoying life. But for some of the things that I had read in the news that week, some of the individuals, how on earth are they going to enjoy their life of the under threat from Boko Haram? How on earth is the, um, the seven-year-old who's sent into forced labour um, most hours of the day, most days of the week, and they have a tiny little bit of time on their own, but that's perhaps just to have a tiny meal they're going to enjoy that day. How on earth are they going to enjoy life? So Western. So I felt so immor- like furious by the immorality of, of, of those words. Very Western. The glorious news of the Christian faith, and it's made crystal clear in Esther, is that in the midst of trouble, there actually is a God that you can turn to. Not probably, there is most definitely a God that you can turn to. There's a God who really exists, who knows your struggle and can deliver you. Now, it's ironic saying that, specifically with the book of Esther, because Esther is the only book in the Bible that doesn't once mention God by name. Now, many of you will have heard that before. Despite that, we see God at work in a thousand different ways, in every scene causing things to happen. And life is like that, isn't it? You know, in war torn parts of the world, we need to hear this. In in this buzzy part of London, we need to hear this. God can sometimes seem non existent. It's true, we felt it. But at those times, He's at work in our every breath, in our every step. And he's the only one who can deliver us when we feel powerless. Um I'm going to split the overview into four scenes, just before we do that, very quickly setting the scene. And I've been doing this over the last few weeks, and it's kind of roughly the same period of time as Nehemiah and uh, uh, Ezra. You'll remember of the Babylonian captivity, loads of Jews were there, you know, weeping by the rivers of Babylon. You'll remember, too, the remarkable turn of fortune, how this, 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 this king comes along, Cyrus, and he conquers the Babylonians in five three nine. He unites the Medes and the Persians into one big Persian empire. And then, surprisingly for a world ruler at the time, he doesn't bother kind of ransacking every Babylonian uh, city. Um, he obviously admires architecture, but he's also incredibly—he's uh, a blessing to the people of Israel, in that he says that you may go go back to your city, Jerusalem. You may. Rebuild the temple. Rebuild the city walls. You know, refind yourselves as God's people. It, 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 he sets out a decree. Um, and the amazing thing is that this, this decree for Israel is welcomed by quite a lot of the other Persian rulers that come after him, but not everyone. And this is where Esther crops up. We pick up Esther's story in the middle of these Jews returning. Uh, the temple's been rebuilt, um, but there's, there's still other works to, to happen. The walls haven't been fully rebuilt. So it's under the reign of King Xerxes, history buffs 486 to 465 BC. Under the reign of King Xerxes the First, where we find the story of Esther, and it's worth saying. There, there are lots of Xerxes and Arctic Xerxes in the Persian Empire, sort of like Edwards and Henry's in the British monarchy. And it can get confusing, but we're talking about Xerxes first. And um, for any of you who, who like film um, or, or history again, think Battle of Thermopylae, um, think that film 300 Uh, where you have Gerard Butler. I mean, it was only filmed, I don't know, 15 years ago. And he shouts out, this is Sparta! And he's got this big beard and there's a load of topless lads, absolutely ripped. That that was the film. Um, And Xerxes, he comes away from that battle, uh, this kind of disastrous invasion of Greece in 480 BC and not such a good fight at Thermopylae. Um, against 300 Spartans he comes back with a little bit of a dented ego and he thinks right I'm just gonna just gonna focus on some domestic affairs uh, affairs for a while just you know, catch my breath and, and, and come and sort out you know what it's like back at home so this is where we pick up Esther the story of Esther under this this, this bad king Xerxes very very proud just had a bit of a battle focus on domestic affairs okay we're there Four scenes, the first two are long, the first two are very short. Uh, the last two are very short. Scene one: "The Fall and Rise of a Queen." And I'm going to start by reading um, some of the book. As I've said, I'm going to read quite a lot of the book um, because it's a gripping read. And I'm going to start from chapter one, and this is just so that we see Xerxes' power. Just imagine if you were invited to the feast that I'm going to tell you about now. So in the days of Xerxes the Xerxes who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days when King Xerxes sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. 180 days. Wow. What a feast. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the Citadel, both great and small, another feast, lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict: there is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Pretty impressive. You could say that Xerxes likes the finer things in life. He can do whatever he wants. And therefore the lesson, I guess, when reading of his power is, don't cross his path. Simple lesson, don't cross his path. That's exactly what his queen, Vashti, does when Xerxes sends for her. He's had a bit to drink. Once again, once again, he's entertaining guests. And he wants to show off Vashti's beauty to the rest of his drink-fuel guests because he's king, king can do what he wants. And Vashti's his property and he can treat his property however he wants. And yet, we read verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Now, I don't know why Vashti refused to put yourself in her shoes. Could be that she was simply tired of being treated like a little pet a playboy bunny, maybe, on demand at the click of Xerxes' fingers. Could be that she didn't like it when her husband drank. This is the kind of thing that he did. I don't know what it was, but what we do know is that from that moment, she was a goner. She was made redundant, her royal title was given away. But then the story gets even more interesting. We find out that if Xerxes were to go speed dating, he would be all about the face and not anything about the personality. Now, I reference speed dating because if you remember all the way back to Exodus, I referenced speed dating and I said if God were to go speed dating, he'd need time with us. You know, speed dating wouldn't, wouldn't work for him because he wants to journey with us and he's about not just the, the superficial stuff, he wants to get to know us deeply. To find his new queen, Xerxes basically throws a beauty pageant So chapter 2, verse 2, I'll read to you again. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And then it says this, quote, This pleased the king and he did so we then read of a woman named esther who verse 7 chapter 2 says had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at written by a fellow isn't it i think (laughs) and surprise surprise we then get to verse 17 of that chapter and we read the king loved esther more than all the women And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. One crucial piece of information I haven't told you so far and that is that Esther was a Jew. She had been brought up by her uncle Mordecai. He's the one who'd put her forward for the beauty pageant and he's the one who told her to to keep quiet about her Jewish roots, which could have potentially spoiled her chances. That's scene one. Scene two, Haman versus Mordecai. And this is the main scene of the book. It is seriously gripping. This is a seriously gripping part of the book. So chapter three, verse one starts. Xerxes promoted Haman the Agagite and set his throne above all the officials and there's a problem in that verse and the problem is a word and it's the word agagite it's akin I guess in our times to hearing, hearing the words um, Taliban or KKK immediately you think right be careful this is not good and the reason being is that the agagites were related to the Amalekites and the Amalekites were one of Israel's biggest enemies. And that feud continued with Haman. Anyway, Haman, after being promoted, he has this huge pride trip and expects everyone to bow down before him. Um, pride's ugly. And I've seen it in my life. Occasionally when I've, when I've been told, oh, you've done something really well. Oh, yeah, well I have. There we go. And I start flaunting um, pride's ugly. We, we, we see it in our own lives. Anyway, Mordecai, Esther's uncle, remember, he would not bow down to Haman. Why? Chapter 3, verse 4. It says simply, Mordecai was a Jew. Could have been because of Haman's ancestry. Could have been because for Mordecai, bowing down was linked to worship. Mordecai only worships the one true God. Either way, at this point in his life, Mordecai makes a stand. And it's similar to Daniel in Babylon. If you remember, he, he makes a stand. Not about absolutely everything, but there are certain things he just takes a stand on. And there's a time and a line, isn't there? We know it in our lives where we, we, we kind of draw a line in the sand. And we say, right, I'm not going past that. I've, got, I've been pushed up to that point, but I'm not going beyond that. And it's important, you know... Morality kind of pricks our conscience That was what it was for Haman uh, Mordecai back then Anyway Haman hears about this that Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him and this is where things get really 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 sinister Rather than simply having a grudge against Mordecai He decides to have a personal vendetta not just against him but against every single living Jew And he makes the Jews sound like this unruly, wicked people to Xerxes. And he goes to the king and he requests permission to completely destroy them. And unfortunately, Xerxes gives his seal of approval. And it is an absolutely horrible edict Xerxes decrees. And, you know, you read it, read it, and it just reminds me of the Holocaust. It reminds me of the horror Jews have had to endure throughout human history. So these are some of the words from the edict, chapter 3, verse 13. It's appalling. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, to plunder their goods. It's horrific, isn't it? That's horrific reading. And can you imagine if you were a Jew back then? Hearing of this, thinking about that day, having a calendar up on your wall, crossing out all the days leading up to that day, thinking, how would the words, there's probably no God, go ahead and enjoy your life, how would they help? Never gonna help. Mordecai hears of this decree. Understandably, he begins mourning. He doesn't just stop there. He fasts and he prays and he wants Queen Esther to say something to Xerxes. Understandably, she's worried, because if one approaches the king, even the queen, without having been summoned, that person is at risk of being put to death, and Esther's never been summoned before at this point. So the moral dilemma for her, put yourself in her shoes, should she speak, shouldn't she, does she value her life? Well, amazingly, Mordecai convinces her with what I think are the most profound words of the book. So, chapter 4, verses 13 to 16. Listen carefully to these words. They're, They're important. I think they're words for us too. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, "'Do not think to yourself "'that in the king's palace "'you will escape any more than all the other Jews. "'For if you keep silent at this time, "'relief and deliverance will rise "'for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish.' And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish. I perish. brave woman chapter 5 begins with her approaching Xerxes and you can imagine her nerves again can't you have I caught him on a good day what if he woke up the wrong side of the bed (laughs) is this day my last day amazingly verse 2 says she won favour in his sight he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand and that basically meant we're on good terms and after that, you might expect her, and I try and put myself in her shoes, I, I would have just fell at his feet there and then, oh, blubbering wreck, please help, help, help. She doesn't do that. She kind of builds up the suspense, and she delays twice. She says, you know, if it please the king, come to a feast. And, and by doing that, just the story, the narrative, it just grows more intense. It's really exciting. And she's also, at the same time, is she is... Wooing Xerxes more and more, impressing her by impressing him by her charm, but she's also lulling Heyman into a false sense of security. Now, in between the two feasts, Heyman, surprise, surprise, he has another ego trip. Because remember, pride's ugly and it just gets worse and worse. He starts thinking to himself, I'm loved by the king. Huh, I'm also loved by the queen. She's inviting me to these feasts. I'm a big deal. And what Yeah, yeah, Haman, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of names, but you need to remember Haman. Haman is the bad guy, okay? Well, Xerxes is also quite bad. but um, Whilst he's thinking these very inflated thoughts, he sees Mordecai, that's the Jewish uncle, good guy. He sees Mordecai, and in his eyes, in Haman's eyes, he sees just a little maggot walking along. It causes him so much rage he builds a gallows. And it's not just any gallows, it's a gallows that is 23 metres high to hang him on, to make a spectacle of him. This ridiculous height symbolising this prideful rage. He plans on asking Xerxes for permission for the execution the next day. However, in the king's palace that night, Xerxes couldn't sleep. Something was on his mind. Uh, I'm sure we've all been in this space where we try and try as we might to get to sleep, we can't because there's just a thought and it won't let up and so we have to put the bedside light on, we have to sit up and we have to think about that thought, what, what is this thought and maybe we write it down in a journal by the side of us, close the journal, then we can go back to sleep, we've got some closure. And so he wakes up, he yeah I remember a few years ago there was an assassination plot on my life, who was the guy who worked it out, who basically saved my life? And so he tells one of his officials, look, go and find the records. I, I just need to know this name before I can go to sleep. I need to honour this person. So the official goes off and he comes back. Surprise, surprise, it was Mordecai who worked out the assassination plot. Mordecai, the Jewish uncle. Well, morning comes round and Xerxes, King Xerxes, is feeling really good. He's remembered uh, Mordecai's name. He says to Haman, who he sees, bad guy, Haman, he says, chapter 6, verse 6, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honour? And Haman, as we know, he's such a just ugly, proud man. He thinks, oh, he's talking about me. And he says, well, I think we should dress him in royal robes and treat him like royalty. And Xerxes basically says, yes, you're right. Thus shall be done for Mordecai. What a turn of fortune. So all of a sudden, Haman is mourning and he's sulking behind closed curtains in his home home. As he's doing that, he's summoned to be with the king for the big feast Queen Esther has prepared. And during the feast, it seems like Xerxes' love for Esther has just gone to a whole new level. And so he asks her, like, what is your request? Come on, just let me know. It's the first time she says she's a Jew. The timing is absolutely perfect. Chapter 7, verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favour in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request, for we have been sold. I am my people to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. had only been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. Our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Then the king Xerxes said to Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the scene ends with Haman being hanged on the very gallows that he himself had made for Mordecai. What a gripping read this book is. Uh, scene three, very briefly, uh, there's a new edict Uh, that has to be written because once an edict was written you couldn't just erase it so Xerxes writes a new edict saying actually the Jews are allowed to defend themselves which they do and they actually prosper through it that's scene three scene four the feast of Purim the book ends with spontaneous celebrations becoming a yearly formal feast of gladness and celebration and, and giving gifts called the feast of Purim And it is still, by the way, celebrated by Jews to this day. Apparently, children, they get given uh, one of those little rattle things. Do you remember back in the day going to packed football stadiums? You you had those things that you whirred around like that. They get given those kind of things. And it's kind of pantomime-esque. Whenever Haman's name is mentioned as the book of Esther is read out, the children all whir their little rattle, kind of booing him out of history. That is the book. Three very brief life lessons as I close. There are so many lessons in this book. Um, But I want to come back to that feeling that at times it seems, it can seem to us that God's absent. Either we don't think he is there or, or, or we think that he's just not bothered by our circumstances. But this book shows us that he's working in a thousand different ways was it by chance that Esther just happened to be a seriously pretty Jew? Was it by chance that she was favoured by the king? Was it by chance that Mordecai overheard an assassination plot? Was it by chance that Haman built a huge gallows the day before Mordecai was rewarded? Was it by chance that Xerxes couldn't sleep the night before Haman's planned execution of Mordecai? You know, there's so many questions. You, know, I have, you have to have more faith to believe in the chance of all that than simply believe that God is working his... His purposes out through history. Friend, remember that God is journeying with you. You're not on your own. He's there every step of the way. Even when it feels like you're alone, you're not. The beautiful truth is, as Christians, he's closer than we could ever possibly imagine. He's, he's living within us, flowing around our veins. Secondly, and I guess this is more of a challenge, It's that line, chapter 7, spoken from Mordecai to Esther. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? And again, it's just pausing and asking ourselves that question. Where is the this in our lives? Have you been placed by God where you are in your life for such a time as this? Are there people in your lives that are there for such a time as this because you are there alongside them? What is this going to mean for you? It's important, I think, that we'd all have time out today to ask God, is there something you want me to say or do in the place, the sphere of influence that you have me in? Help me not to miss it. And then the final thing that I want to say is to do with that Feast of Purim and celebration. Knowing all of this stuff, Are we celebrating God as much as we should be? Are we celebrating the testimonies? It was wonderful to have those testimonies at the start. Are we celebrating what he's doing in our lives as much as we should be? That's Esther, friends. I hope you've enjoyed it.